Today on Blue 58, we've lost another member of the Lombardi-era Packers. Let's take a second to remember Willie Davis and talk about some of what made him special. Then, what are the chances the Packers actually could make a big trade for somebody like Odell Beckham Jr.? I know there are some controversial feelings on him. What would it actually take since he's reportedly on the block? Then, figuring out what exactly some of that wacky quarterback language is. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, happy to be with you here for another episode. I know it's been a while. These are some wild times. Here's what's been going on with me. So, again, not with w- without going into too much detail about what exactly I do or what my job is, because that doesn't matter. Like a lot of people, I've been affected in a, in a small way by what's going on with the coronavirus. So, I have... Uh, well, three weeks or so ago, I was moved from full-time hours to part-time hours, which normally for getting podcast stuff out would be would be great because that means you work from 9 till noon or 9 till 1, whatever, 8.30 to noon, you know, whatever the time is, four hours and then wrap it up for the day. Uh, but this last week and a half or so, I was abruptly moved back to full-time hours and then some just because of the amount of work that we had to get done. And with a nine-month-old, um, that did not leave a whole lot of extra time for getting podcast stuff out. That's not to say I haven't been putting stuff together. I thought it was kind of funny within the last couple of weeks, one of my podcasting heroes, Dan Carlin, released the first episode of his Common Sense show in about two years. And he actually said that over the past two years, he said he had sat down something like 38 times to try to get a show out and just didn't feel good about anything that he was putting together. Over the last week or so since we've last spoken – I've sat down to prep stuff at least three or four times thinking at least I'll get out a little bit of, of something to tide people over or whatever until we can do a more more fully fledged episode. And it just hasn't come together. And I think that's that's probably not a good way to go about things anyway because you probably end up putting out a subpar program um, if you just try to slam something together just to get something out. So I've ultimately decided I would rather get out a better, longer show then slam together something a little bit shorter. So that's what we got today. Here we are. It is Friday. Yay, Friday. Fridays are still Fridays, even in a pandemic. Um, feel like that would be on a t-shirt or something. Uh, but here we are. And uh, hopefully you're doing well. Uh, by and large, we're doing well too. And uh, I hope that you continue to to fight the good fight in the midst of all this. We've got some good stuff to talk about. Um, it is a shame that we've gotten this news about Willie Davis in the midst of all this other stuff. Uh, But there are some good things to remember about him. And we will talk about that in just a second. I kind of did my intro out of order. We're actually going to talk about training for a wide receiver first. The rumor going around is that Odell Beckham Jr. is on the block in Cleveland. They have denied it, which of course they're going to, uh, whether it's true or not, uh, they they have to say that. So that doesn't really change anything as far as, as... the rumor mill is concerned. But the word is that the Vikings are in the market for Odell Beckham Jr. The price is just a second-round pick and a fifth-round pick next year, 2021 draft picks. Um, And I know a lot of people, when I've brought this up in the past, have downplayed the idea of trading for Odell because he is Odell Beckham Jr. and a lot of people have complicated feelings about him. I, I get that. And so that's not really the direction that I want to go here. 
I think the direction kind of needs to be steered by a question we got on Twitter. Jared asks me if this is true, quote tweeting the initial report about uh, Beckham being on the move. If this is true, the Packers can't match that and possibly add to it. I know the wide receiver class is deep, but this deal seems like pennies for Odell Beckham Jr. So I think there's two interesting aspects to that question. First, when does it become a good value to just trade for an asset that you think is good? So whether or not you think Odell Beckham Jr. is the answer, just picture it as trading, adding an asset to your team. Whichever whichever position the Packers would happen to need at any time. When does the value become just too good to pass up? Generally thinking, I think you want to avoid trading for big contracts. So that's the first thing to consider. Because I think then you end up paying a guy twice, especially if it's a situation where he wants a contract extension. That was always the deal, among many other things, with Antonio Brown. You didn't want to have to redo his contract on top of trading for him because you got to pay for him with draft picks and you got to pay for him like he's a free agent. I don't think that's the case with Odell Beckham Jr. So that's at least, in the case of this asset, at least one significant reason to do it. Secondly, I think you have to weigh the reality or the the likelihood that you are going to get someone who is as good as Odell Beckham Jr. is with a second-round pick or a fifth-round pick, or whether your combined second- and fifth-round picks are going to be as good as Odell Beckham Jr. I think that is the most compelling case for trading for veteran players, and I think that's something Bill Belichick has really figured out. People overvalue, I think, draft picks, or at least the potential that draft picks have to be good, to be great. People kind of overrate their own ability to select players that are as good as players who are already in the NFL. And if you can exploit that, you can get yourself some good value on the trade market. Just for way of conversation, let's take a look at what the Packers combined second and fifth round picks have been over the last few years. And again, don't look at this as being tied to Odell Beckham Jr. Look at this as trading for anybody. So 2019 is a year where maybe you don't feel super great about trading a two and a five for anybody because that year they get Elton Jenkins and Kingsley Kiki. No matter what Kiki turns out to be, I think you'd be hesitant to trade Elton Jenkins for anybody. 2018, though, Josh Jackson is your second round pick. Your three fifths are Cole Madison, J.K. Scott, and Marquez Valdez-Scantling. I would trade Josh Jackson and any one of those fifth round picks for just about any established NFL player. If the Packers could get a starting right tackle who's under contract at a reasonable figure for three or four more years for Josh Jackson and any one of those three guys, I would do it in a heartbeat. I think the same is true for 2017. Kevin King and Josh Jones are your fifth round picks. Your fives that year are D'Angelo Yancey and Aaron Jones. Obviously, you wouldn't trade Jones, but you've got another fifth round pick there. If it's pick number 175, which D'Angelo Yancey was, and either Josh Jones or Kevin Kings for someone who is of the caliber of an asset like Odell Beckham Jr., I think you do that pretty easily. Two and five in 2016 is Jason Spriggs and Trevor Davis. You'll do that deal. 2015, Quentin Rollins and Brett Hundley. You'd do that deal. You see what I'm trying to say here. 
a two and a five is not that big a price for an asset the caliber of someone like Odell Beckham Jr., no matter how good you think Odell Beckham Jr. may or may not be. If he's 85% of a Pro Bowl level receiver, I think he's better than most of those combinations of second and fifth round picks. And the bigger point is that he's a known commodity. You can you can get something good for him. Or you can get something good and you know he's probably going to be good because he's done it before already. That's my piece about trading for a guy like Odell Beckham Jr. Maybe not him specifically, but just the idea of trading in general. I think you have to be really hesitant about overrating your own draft picks or your ability to pick guys and be more open to the idea of going and getting a guy who may be available. And again, doesn't have to be Odell Beckham Jr. Willie Davis. He kind of falls in an unfortunate era of football history. Not in that the football was unfortunate, but in that there was not a lot that we can look back on from a measurable perspective and really get an idea of the kind of player he was. So Reggie White, you can look at his box score stats and see he got dozens and dozens of sacks. He was obviously a great player. Linebackers, did he get a pile of tackles, cornerbacks? Did he have a bunch of interceptions? You get the idea. For the era he played in, Willie Davis did not have those kind of numbers, but he was as feared and respected as any player of his era probably possibly could be. Because even echoing down now through the years, when people talk about Willie Davis, you can really get a sense for the presence he carried as a player, which I think is pretty cool. Just the way that he affected the people around him is amazing. And he had that kind of effect on opposing offenses too. You will get some people who will argue. There's one very vocal voice on Packers Twitter, and if you know who it is, you know who I'm talking about. If you don't, don't worry about it, who says he should be considered the Packers' all-time sack leader. I would push back on that. He is not the Packers' all-time sack leader because he doesn't have any career sacks because they were not a stat when he played. And that's fine. All that means is that we have to do a little bit of extra work to figure out the kind of player that he was. And like I said, his legacy does have a way of echoing down through the years. One of the things that I like to do is collect books that um, illuminate that era, either because they were written in the era in which these players played or they were written by people who played along with those players or coached them or saw them play. Those things are very important to have because they give you a first-hand account, a primary source of what a player was like. Golden Books has a bunch of books that were written specifically for kids. You can find them in a lot of thrift stores. I, I like to pick them up whenever I can. Um, kind of detailing um, you know, various aspects of professional football, professional football players, who's great, who's not, stuff like that. Great for kids, but also great because they do a great job of uh, giving us an example of what people thought of certain players at the time. I don't have any of those that talk specifically about Willie Davis, but what I do have are two excerpts from books that kind of give us a, a good glimpse into who he was as a player. The books are Ten Men You Meet in the Huddle by Bill Curry and Game of My Life by Chuck Carlson. Bill Curry 
should be noteworthy to Packers fans because he actually played for the Packers, was center for the Packers in the 60s and played along with Willie Davis, went on to a long coaching and broadcasting career, and he has a lot of good things to say about Willie Davis. I'm going to read you this excerpt. Bill Curry has an interesting story as a football player in the 60s because he, if you look at his playing pictures, was every bit the um, white crew-cut, all-American boy that you could imagine. But he has the, at least in the era he played in, the downside of being from the South. That's not necessarily a downside in who he was as a player, but his cultural attitudes, and he will admit this, needed a little bit of adjusting. He would not describe himself as a racist, but he's pretty open about the idea of not being... He didn't know how to act around his black teammates. Vince Lombardi was famously very open for his racial attitudes, at least for the time. And I think he was a great example kind of of an, an uh, of a coach who understood players as people, as people who had identities beyond what they could do on the field, and recognizing what football could do to play a part in that identity. And getting people of all racial backgrounds on the team was part of that. But for somebody from the South, like Mr. Curry, playing with black teammates for the first time, or for an extended period of time for the first time, was a bit of a change. But he had a great one in Willie Davis. And here's what he has to say about playing with Willie Davis. It was 10 o'clock. This is in training camp. And I had some time before curfew. As I was walking along in the darkness, a voice suddenly boomed out from behind me. Bill, Bill, hold up. I'd like to talk with you. I was startled. I mean, it sounded like the voice of God. When I turned, there was Willie Davis, the most intimidating Green Bay Packer of them all. Willie was an all-pro from Grambling, the defensive captain and a future Hall of Famer. Not only that, but he was working on his MBA at the University of Chicago. At six foot three and 243 pounds, he was on the small side for a defensive end, even back then. But ha- I have never known a man before or since who had more presence. I stopped and turned toward him. I still remember his great smile and his fatherly eyes. But what he did want, but what did he want with me? Willie waited, sensing my discomfort. Then he spoke and changed my life forever. Despite the 42 years that have passed since it took place, I believe this is close to verbatim what he said to me that night. Bill, I've been watching you at practice. I like the way you try so hard. You're, you're improvising. You're improving, excuse me. I think you have a chance to make our team and I want to help you. I remember when I felt the same way you do now. I was stuck in Cleveland playing offensive tackle for the Browns, and Coach Lombardi traded for me and gave me a chance to play defense. I was really happy but insecure about changing sides of the ball. But he gave me a chance, we became a good team, and the insecurity started to fade. When we made it to the NFL championship game against the Eagles in 1960, it was a thrill, but we got beat, and I had a horrible feeling about my performance. I wandered out of the locker room and back onto the field. There were newspapers and popcorn boxes blowing around, but I knew there was more than newspapers and boxes on that field. There were regrets. I had left regrets on that field because I hadn't played my very best. I made up my mind that in that moment, that would never happen again to Willie Davis. Bill at practice tomorrow and every day after, leave no regrets on that field. Leave no regrets on the field. I listened with rapt attention, and Willie continued. When you think you can't take it anymore, when Coach Lombardi is screaming in your face and Nitschke is breaking your nose, look for me. I'll get you through it. 
Willie's nickname on the team was Dr. Feelgood, and for good reason. The man had the most upbeat, positive, supportive attitude of anyone I've ever met. Sure enough, when the blood and tears flowed, when the Blardy screamed the loudest and Nitschke smashed hardest, I'd find myself searching for number 87. How do you feel, old man? I asked him, trying hard to sound casual. Feel good, man, was the invariable response accompanied by that brilliant smile of his. Feel real good. To me, Willie Davis embodied the platonic ideal of team captain. While it may be a bit much to canonize him here, I can state with absolute confidence that the lesson he taught me applies in some way to every person in every calling, regardless of one's station in life. Feel good, man. You can do it. Feel good. That's a good story about Willie Davis. But what it doesn't tell you is the rest of the story about Willie Davis, because he talked there about that 1961-1960 championship game, the only championship game that Vince Lombardi ever lost. The 1961 championship game was the first one he won with the Packers, and Willie Davis called that the best game he ever played. But don't take my word for it. Here's Willie Davis describing it. And this is, like the last one, a bit of a long excerpt, but I think it will be enjoyable to you. Here's what Willie Davis said about that game. Championship games will always highlight your memory more than anything, even though they may not have been your best game in terms of individual performances. I remember the championships as if they were yesterday and remember the plays even as they occurred. The 1961 championship game in Green Bay against the Giants was one of the best total performances I've seen. We beat them 37 to nothing. I think it was so memorable because of what it meant for us that we had not been able to achieve the year before against the Eagles. Much of what emanated from that Eagles game was what Vince Lombardi told us. He said after that game that we would never lose another championship game as long as he was coaching. That was pretty strong talk. That's why I think we went out and decimated the Giants. The offense, the defense, everybody played at a level that in my mind was one of our best performances. Add to that fact that it was played in Green Bay and it was the first championship in a long, long time. It had all the things that would cause you to remember it for a long, long time. When he won the second championship, it was important, but it was played in New York, and it was just about the coldest game I ever played in. But the 1961 game, I remember it was a cold Wisconsin day. It was nothing like the Ice Bowl, but it was cold. It was kind of it was the kind of day that Lombardi would often characterize as our kind of day, and it was. It was cold, but you could play comfortably. It was a good day. I was talking to Forrest Gregg just a few weeks ago, and he was saying, had he been able to get a complete copy of the 19, or he was saying he had been able to get a complete copy of the 1961 game. I told him I needed to get one too, and he said I can see why, because they called your name a lot on the public address. It was one of my better games. I was playing Giants right tackle Jack Stroud, and I just remember every time they threw the ball, we got pressure on the ball. It was strictly attitude. I said I'm not going to be denied today. It was a game built around confidence. And we dominated the game. The fans really got into it. I would say it was a love affair that would day. That day, it was something I don't think happened in any other game because I remember them yelling out, "Go get him, Willie!" They were having a ball. It was the greatest memory I had in football, and it had to compare to my being traded from Cleveland to Green Bay and believing for a minute that Green Bay was the worst place in the NFL. Paul Brown used to describe Green Bay as the Siberia of football, but it was the greatest ten years of my life. I like sharing those two anecdotes together because I think they give you a good insight into who Willie Davis was as a player. That first one came after the second. Years into his career, already a multiple-time NFL champion, Willie Davis takes the time to encourage a young player, 
a young player who's struggling with his time in Green Bay, by telling him, leave no regrets out on the field. Willie Davis still playing that way as a multiple-time NFL champion, serving as an example for younger players, and I guess serving as an example to us now, even years later too, leaving no regrets out there on the field. Always a good message, and I think a good one. Let's finish out today by talking about Take Your Eye Off the Ball, Chapter 3. I thought this was a good one, but I think there's some good stuff we can add to it in context a little bit that will help our understanding even a little bit more. Um, I think the job of the quarterback is one of the most misunderstood in football. And I think it's great to have this chapter talking about exactly what a quarterback's responsibilities are in a given week and on a given play. But I think there are a couple things that we can push back on even a little bit more that will help our understanding as well. First, just, I guess, a note as um, about Kerwin as an author. I've really enjoyed his schematic stuff. I've not enjoyed so much when he starts talking about individual players because I think you start to see the holes a little bit in some of his his analysis. For instance, he calls Drew Brees the very best there is at reading the coverage after the snap. From 2010 through 2014, this is on page 51 of my copy, he cites Drew Brees dropping back more than 3,300 times and was sacked just once every 23 attempts, despite the fact that the Saints offensive line has not traditionally been a strong part of their offense. And that's true, but it doesn't necessarily tell the whole story about Drew Brees as a quarterback, because even though he may have been sacked less, he still put the Saints in some bad spots in those dropbacks, spots that do reflect on his ability to read the field as, as a quarterback. So, just talking about his stats there, let's talk about the, the numbers that he talked about. Uh, Drew Brees did, in fact, drop back just a little bit more than 3,300 times between 2010 and 2014, and he was sacked 141 times. The exact number isn't super specific because we're going to be talking about percentages here. He was sacked on 4.1% of his dropbacks, which is really good because, for comparison, Aaron Rodgers was sacked on 6.7% of his dropbacks during that same time. And he dropped back almost a thousand times less than, uh, than Drew Brees in the same time period. However, Drew Brees also threw interceptions on 2.6% of his throws in that same time period. Aaron Rodgers threw interceptions on just one and a half percent of his throws. That is telling the story just partially, if you're saying that he reads the field very well and we know that because he doesn't take that many sacks. He may not take many sacks, but he throws a lot more interceptions than another comparable player. And that speaks to a, a need to always look at the whole picture as often as you can. A good number that kind of marries both of those things is adjusted net yards per attempt, and that's one that we've talked about quite a bit on this program. I think it's the best single number for looking at a player's passing performance. It factors in things like sacks and interceptions into your overall performance, as well as the touchdowns you're throwing. And for way of comparison, in that 2010 to 2014 stretch, Drew Brees has an adjusted net yards per attempt of just 7.14. That's a pretty good figure. But in that same time span, 
Aaron Rodgers has an adjusted net yards per attempt of 8.18. He's throwing more touchdowns, he's throwing fewer interceptions, and he's getting sacked only slightly more than Drew Brees. Just a little bit of additional context to uh, to what Kerwin is saying there. Secondly, and this is one that I really wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about, not so much in, in terms of adding to what he says, but by giving you more resources to learn about what he's talking about here on your own. Um, he spends quite a bit of time talking about the the verbiage of play calls, which I think is super interesting um, because I'm interested in the different languages that teams use to communicate essentially the same information. There's only so many ways that you can have a few patch, pass catchers and a running back run around on the field. But there are almost infinite ways that you can describe it. So the language that teams are using is really, really interesting to me. And you can get quite a bit of that information on the internet. A lot of it is publicly available. But let's talk about what Kerwin uses that as an example here. Page 41 of chapter 3. He talks about a play called 768 tailback swing, which is the old Sid Gilman, Don Coryell way of numbering plays. Tells everybody what they need to do. But he says somebody like uh, John Gruden would have a play doing similar things, named something like I weak right, X fly, Y stop, Z curl, full back free. Yes, that is uh, that is much more complicated. But if you want to learn exactly why that play might be called what it is, you have to actually go and look at what John Gruden's playbook is and on the excellent website, footballxos.com, to which I will link in your show notes today. You can actually get a look at one of John Gruden's playbooks. This one, a a playbook from a 1998 Oakland Raiders minicamp. He, in this playbook, actually outlines every little thing that you would need to know to play quarterback for the Oakland Raiders. What are the names of your formations? What are the different responsibilities that every player has on the field? What do all of these little code words mean? For instance, there is a page in this playbook that outlines all of the terminology that he uses just in the two-minute offense. For instance, on a third and one with time on the play clock, if the quarterback for the Oakland Raiders back then, almost 20 or more than 20 years ago, yells Jeff, the play is a quarterback sneak. It's just that simple. Everything in the playbook has some sort of correlation like that. When he uses Kerwin again, um, the example of, and now I've lost my place in the book, shift to I, Z motion, strong curl, flat swing, as a comparison to 939, that's actually not true. That's not a fair comparison. Shift to I is actually motion. Z is also motion. Strong curl, flat swing is the only part of that play call that actually corresponds to that numbering system. But his point about verbiage in certain playbooks being burdensome is a good one. Here is an actual play call from that playbook that is nothing more than a one-route pass to a receiver who goes in motion. So it's a quick play action that you want to dump to one guy. You're trying to create a mismatch. But the play the play call, and again, just one guy in this route, this is the play call. Brown left, close F, 
right sprint, right solid Z, quick drag. Why so many words just to get one player running right? And I think this has been an interesting trend in football lately. You can see guys going away from stuff like this, not so much dumbing it down, but um, simplifying things just to make it easier for everybody to get on the same page more quickly. And I think that's been important as practice times have been reduced, as players are coming in with different experience levels in pro-style offenses. That's been important, and it's been interesting to see that develop. What did you think about Chapter 3? What do you think about the uh, the upcoming NFL draft? We're about a week away, less than a week away, in fact. I would like to hear your thoughts because next week we're going to do an episode on Wednesday kind of predicting what the Packers are going to do. Uh, we're going to do one, or we're going to talk a little bit about maybe some players that we haven't gotten to yet. So I just want to hear everything that we haven't touched on yet draft-wise that you would like to hear about. Who are the players that we haven't touched on that you want us to dive into? What are any last mock drafts you want us to look at? Send all that stuff my way. We'll kind of wrap up everything with the draft. I'll take your questions. I'll look at your questions uh, prior to that. And we'll kind of do one last uh, look at the draft before the draft actually happens. And I'm excited because we could use some actual sports content right now. Uh, But again, that's all I've got for you in this episode. If you like this, if you think somebody would benefit from hearing, hearing it, go ahead and share it. I would love to get it out there to more people. That's something that I'm really trying to do to grow the show right now. And heck, we could all use a little bit more content. So if you know anyone looking for a Packers podcast, send this show their way. Because doing that is going to continue this conversation about the Packers. That's something we want to do. Because doing so is going to help us all become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans. And better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We will see you next time on Blue 58.